Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations. Their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. Peggy Knudsen, a trauma surgeon from San Francisco, California, who delivered the Excelsior Surgical Society Edward D. Churchill Lecture at Clinical Congress 2023. Her lecture, Service, Synergy, and Surgical Mythology, describes her experiences with the military, the synergy between military and civilian surgeons, and some myths about treatment of the injured. Dr. Knudsen seeds some of her lecture time so that the audience could hear the personal story of a special guest, television journalist Bob Woodruff, who was severely injured in 2006 while reporting on the war in Iraq. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. It's a real pleasure to be here, and thank you all for uh, joining me this morning which, or for something I hope is a little bit educational and, more importantly, a little bit fun. So this is a very, very special year for the Churchill Lecture. Churchill's book was first published in 1972, and thanks to the efforts of Dr. Cannon and Dr. Johanneman, we have received permission to reprint his book for the first time. Of those of you who have tried to get this book, it's extremely expensive. You can get it off of eBay or sometimes Amazon. It costs about $800. Um, so now with a second reprint, we'll be able to make it available to many of you. Um, at the second edition, we'll also include some contemporary surgeons' comments after each chapter. And in my opinion, it's a must read for all trauma surgeons. As Jeremy mentioned, the Excelsior Surgical Society first met in 1945 at the Excelsior Hotel in Rome, where they discussed their experiences during deployment. This one, this photograph lives in the archives at the ACS, which is why it's got a big crack in it. This is the actual original photo. Uh, we have an incredible archivist at the college, and she was able to find this for us. The actual first Excelsior Churchill lecture was actually delivered here in Boston in 1946 by Alfred Blaylock. Not surprisingly, Dr. Blaylock talked about his shunts. And then when the last member of the original Excelsior Surgical Society expired, in 1980, the lecture moved into the college. I reviewed every one of the lectures from 1980 to 2022 and only one mentioned Churchill in all 43 lectures, and that was by Dr. Holcomb. When he talked about plasma and RBC resuscitation, Churchill was right. I have to say, Dr. Holcomb looks a lot more relaxed than Dr. Blaylock. So Dr. Churchill was a medical student during World War I, and thus, thus he was deferred from service. In World War II, he was on the staff at the Massachusetts General Hospital, and he was given what was called essential status, which again meant he wasn't deployable. 
but he really wanted to accompany his surgical staff, who were all being deployed. So he volunteered to go with the Navy as a consultant. And sorry, Captain Elster, he was rejected several times. So he eventually got accepted by the Army, but he had to be enlisted as a colonel. And he was deployed to the North African Mediterranean Theater. Dr. Francis Moore wrote of Churchill that if there was a school named after Churchill, it would be called the School of Clear Thinking because he was regarded as one with a keen perception in clinical surgery. His perception of the beacons of clinical reality in a sea of military dogma and surgical mythology permitted him to make innovations that vastly improved the care of the wounded during World War II. He had many, many contributions to military medicine. He described the forward surgical teams, which consisted of a chief surgeon, assistant surgeon, anesthesiologist, surgical nurse, and technicians. These forward surgical teams were placed between 3 and 15 miles from the front battlefields, basically within the golden hour. This is not unlike a World II facility in modern medical terms. Michael DeBakey said that this high-quality surgical care at the level of the field hospital proved highly advantageous for the morale of the troops to know that there was someone there in close proximity to care for them should they be injured. He also had a three-phased approach to wound care. The first phase was at the field hospitals, dedicated to life-saving procedures and prevention of infection. In phase two, in the zone of communication, the emphasis one, it was on restoring early function. And then in phase three, the zone of the interior, which was back in CONUS, basically, reconstructive surgery was reserved. This is not unlike damage control surgery, which we think is new and has actually been in existence at least since World War II. In 1982, Dr. Blaisdell, who was one of my heroes at San Francisco General Hospital, delivered the Scudder Oration, which was termed wound shock. Prior to World War II, it was believed that there was some toxin that caused death after injury, and it was called, this toxin was called wound shock. Early in World War II, it was felt that plasma was sufficient to, to replace the intravascular space, and saline was used for the interstitial space. Churchill said, from the perspective of those of us in Tunisia, it appears that everyone in the U.S. is going haywire, with the belief that some mysterious entity was causing shock. Wound shock is blood loss, identical with hemorrhage. So he, he decided to write to the Surgeon General back in Washington and requested blood and blood banking equipment to be sent to theater. He was politely told to cease and desist. But instead, he decided to write to the New York Times and said, you know, we're killing people over here with plasma, but red blood cells will save the soldiers. So not surprisingly, blood bank equipment arrived shortly thereafter in the theater in Italy. One of the things I found really interesting in his book was the description of military surgery as a discontinuous specialty. And he gives this example. Imagine if all the neurosurgeons decided to put away their instruments and their books and say, we're not doing neurosurgery anymore. Well, yeah, that's not going to happen, but just imagine it. And 25 years later, some young kid who's never seen a human brain decides, I want to be a neurosurgeon. I think I'll start it over. 
has to go dust off the books, look to see what's true and what's not true. He's basically saying that's what military surgery is. It's a discontinuous specialty. He harped on this again when he spoke at the Army Graduate School in 1961. Surgeons in the current war never begin where the surgeons in the previous war left off. They always go through another long learning period, and subsequently soldiers die and lose their limbs because their doctor was ignorant of past experience. So Dr. Churchill and I have a few similarities. We both were well into our surgical careers before we ever thought about military service. I was politely told by Warren Dorlack that I was MMA, meaning old. <laughs> Interestingly, we both have a research interest in pulmonary embolism. Most of you know that that's, I spent my whole career on this, and uh, so did Dr. Churchill. Also interesting in his book are two UCSF surgeons that are mentioned as consultants. One was Dr. Leo Elowesser. Leo Elowesser's portrait hung outside my, my office in San Francisco General for the 32 years that I worked there. He was famous for the Elowesser flap, which was a way of treating some of the complications of tuberculosis. Howard Nassinger started the UCSF surgical program in 1929, actually the first surgical program in the Western United States. And the, and the Nassiger Surgical Society is still very active at UCSF. He, he wrote a lot about the Coconut Grove nightclub fire that he personally uh, experienced in taking care of that mass casualty in Boston in 1942. And uh, as Jeremy mentioned, I had my own experience with dealing with disasters when the Asiana air crane crashed at the San Francisco airport in 2013. By the way, it was July. You know what happens in July, right? You've got all new house staff, and it was July 4th. And I remember two of my interns said to me, Dr. Knudsen, is it always like this? <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit about how I got into being interested uh, and was lucky enough to be part of some of the military experiences. It actually started in the 1990s when laparoscopic surgery, and I know many of you in the room think laparoscopic surgery's been around forever, but it actually wasn't. It was just entering mainstream in around the 1990s. And there was no such thing as the fundamentals of laparoscopic surgery course. There was no critical view for removing a gallbladder safely. And the introductory courses were actually sponsored by, injury, by industry because they were making the uh, equipment. So it wasn't surprising that surgeons went directly from the pigs on the left-hand side to the patients the next day. And there were many, many injuries to the common bile duct in those days. So the college got um, concerned about this and formed a committee under Olga Jonasson called the Committee on Emerging Surgical Technologies and Education, or SESTI. That started in 1994. The purpose was to develop educational courses in these new technologies. Those of us that were beginning to learn ultrasound at the bedside fell under this new committee called SESTI. And several surgeons from the, formed the National Ultrasound Faculty, and we developed ultrasound courses and, and also suggested ways to credential people in this new specialty. Our military person on NUF was Dr. David Weary from the U.S. University in Bethesda, a very charismatic professor. 
So he called me one day and he said, I want you to drive that Porsche and go to, down to Travis Air Base in Sacramento and teach ultrasound. And I said, well, why do I want to do that? I said, well, because they're, they're deploying Air Force surgeons and they need to know how to do this. So I drove from, Sac from San Francisco to Sacramento and they wouldn't let me on the base. I said, what is it, my car? You know, it's a pretty nice little Porsche. He goes, they go, um, you don't know anything about being on a military base, do you? Apparently I wasn't on the roster. Shortly thereafter, Dr. John Perlstein, Dr. Weary and I made a trip to Germany, 2003, and we taught ultrasound again to deploying army surgeons. And I think Ty Putman is here. He was our, one of our escorts uh, as we came into Landstuhl. Um, and we, we had a chance to listen to some of the discussion of, of cases that were being managed downrange. And one that was really resonated with me was an injury to the IVC. And all of you who have seen that know that's fairly challenging. And I said, you know, who's doing those cases down there? And they said, well, you know, the surgeons are, are doing it. And I said, you know, is there any way that some of us older civilian surgeons who have been operating for a long time could be of assistance? And uh, it didn't really come to fruition right then, but in my mind, that was really the beginning of the Senior Visiting Surgeon Program. So as mentioned uh, by Jeremy, my second encounter was with Colonel J. Johanneman, U.S. Air Force, then, now U.S. Army, but we won't get into that. And he was caring for this small Iraqi boy with this devastating abdominal injuries. And he called and said, do you, do you have any advice on, on a temporary closure for this wide open abdomen. And I said, well, yeah, just put a wound vac on it. And he goes, uh, we don't have one of those here in Iraq at this time. So as, as Jeremy mentioned, I did most of my surgical training at the University of Michigan. And Dr. Louis Argenta was a plastic surgeon at U of M at the same time. The plastic surgeons at the University of Michigan were tasked with taking care of chronic wounds. So he decided that there had to be a better way, a better dressing, one that didn't have to be changed every day. So he and an engineer developed the wound vac technology. I was an early adapter of wound vacs at, at San Francisco General and had a little relationship with KCI, which was the company that was making it at the time. So I said, well, let me, let me call our representatives and see what, what, you know, if I can do anything to help out. So, Pretty soon, I got a DHL tracking number in my email. And there was this thing from London that was going all the way to Bahrain. I have to admit, I had to look up where Bahrain was <laughs> on the map. And pretty soon, the little uh, tracking number said it went to Baghdad. And then eventually, it got to Talil Air Force Base uh, in Iraq. This was the first wound vac to be in, in theater. And as we, as we heard, there was a happy ending. We were able to get this young boy back to the United States by courtesy of the Air Force. Jim Betts at Oaken Children's Hospital dedicated all his time to take care of him. And as mentioned, he has uh, survived. He, is, he went to college. He's now married and gainfully employed. But it did create a new form of art called what I call creative ecology. So getting all these pieces of sponge to talk to each other so that you could, you could put all this on just one wound vac for, for transport uh, during back to the States uh, by, by helicopter or by airplane. So we got, we're pretty creative with wound vacs too, I think at San Francisco General. So the formal 
SVS program was really initiated in 2006. It was co-sponsored by the AAST at the time, Bill Schwab was the president, and by the ACSCOT where, where uh, Wayne Meredith uh, was the chair. It allowed civilian surgeons to volunteer for two weeks at a time at LARMC. Trauma, general surgery, vascular surgeons, and even orthopedic surgeons participated, and ultimately 200 civilian surgeons volunteered their time during the course of the program from 2006 until 2013. Well, what did these senior visiting surgeons do while they were there? Well, they did daily multidisciplinary ICU rounds. They evaluated patients who were arriving by CCAT from Iraq and Afghanistan, assisted in surgery when it was required, provided lectures, grand rounds, presentations. They reviewed the Joint Trauma Service CPGs, their clinical practice guidelines. Some of them conducted research, and everyone was required to develop an after-action report as they left. And as Jeremy mentioned, one of the most important things I think that happened was we really worked hard uh, with the staff that was at LARMC to, to be, make them qualified for trauma center verification by the American College of Surgeons. Well, in 2008, I got my opportunity to actually go into theater. I participated in the Trauma Chiefs Conference in Balad, Iraq in 2008, escorted into theater by Colonel Don Jenkins, who never left my side while I was there. And I got a crash course in military surgery. First of all, the plane landed hot, so nobody can prepare you for that. Um, I was taken directly to the, ice, to the operating room when I landed to see a resuscitation that was being directed only by TEG. I'd never seen a TEG machine before. It made sense that you would give a patient back what they needed by what the TEG told you to do. This patient needs platelets, et cetera. And John, this was before prompt and proper was done, so we didn't know anything about one-to-one-to-one. -to -one -to -one. Um, so we, I learned a lot. Uh, I learned from, uh, from uh, Todd Rasmussen how to put in a vascular shunt. I'd never put in a shunt before. I didn't even, you know, we just fixed the vessels. But I can tell you that if you're uh, doing a combined case back at home with your orthopedic surgeon, they say, hey, let's let us stabilize that fracture. It'll just take us an hour. And I go, let me put the shunt in first, and then you can go to sleep. You can take a shower. You can have breakfast, and you're fresh. When, and when their orthorama is done three or four hours later, you come back and fix the, fix the vessel in your own time. I did learn a lot about management of mass casualties. Um, what I learned most is that the surgeon who's in charge should not go into each of those little cubicles where patients were being resuscitated, but needs to stand out and watch the whole process and, just, and to really direct the traffic on who needs what. And that came in very handy uh, when Asiana Air Crash um, crashed, and we didn't have any warning of them coming in, and all of a sudden had 65 people to evaluate. I also learned a lot about care in the air. I got to fly with the CCAT and really see what could be delivered in the intensive care unit um, on the way back from uh, Iraq, and then another time I got to fly all the way back here to the United States. One of the other things I learned is that there's a lot of humanitarian care that's, that's done both during deployment and afterwards. This is, of course, my good friend, Dr. and Colonel uh, Jennifer Gurney, who's now the chief of the Joint Trauma System and the uh, new president of the Excelsior. 
I think most of us in the civilian world don't appreciate how much humanitarian work is actually delivered by the U.S. military. One of the other th things I learned is that morbidity and mortality conferences were carried out on the roof in the desert, and these were some of the most honest M&Ms that I've ever participated in. And it was a life-changing, if not a hair-changing, experience for me. I just didn't go with the buzz cut. So let's get back to military surgery and see if we can think synergistically, working between the military and the civilian world in making military surgery a continuous specialty as opposed to a discontinuous specialty. I have a few suggestions. Those of you in the audience, become an, an asset plus instructor. I know Dr. Boyer would welcome new instructors. It's an unbelievably uh, an unbelievable course for both civilian and military. I mean, every time you teach it, you learn something new and you remember something new. So if you have the time, volunteer as to be an instructor. Please go online, www.facs/mcurriculum, and evaluate our 42 modules that we have worked so hard to put up. They're a crash course in trauma and, and uh, military medicine. Each module is about 15 minutes with some videos in it and the quizzes before and after. And we really need people to evaluate it. Use it to teach your, your medical students, your fellows, your residents, and let us know how we can make it better as we go into 2.0. It's taken us four years to get this far. And it is free, by the way. Participate in the Excelsior Surgical Society. If you, are bent, if you have any military background, you, you qualify for a full membership. There are also honorary memberships, which I'm sure will be um, continued and will be expanded. You know, we started small. We have now about 400 members. Um, we have a full day at the Clinical Congress now. Uh, everything's in the book, so everybody knows what's going on. And monthly webinars are held. It's a very, very active society with, with committees scholarship, research. If you are a member, please pay your dues. You can also help support military-civilian partnerships. If you're able to lobby, if you're a civilian and you can lobby, make sure that Congress knows that Mission Zero needs to be funded every year. If you're in, a, if you're in one of the partnerships, take the blue book and evaluate your partnership to see if it actually meets the criteria that it was designed to do. And remember that these are two-way streaks. It, it's, it helps the military, yes, but the civilians get a lot out of these partnerships, including our ability to, to respond to disasters within our country um, because of these relationships. Consider supporting the Future Trauma Leaders Program. The Military Health System Strategic Partnership funds one of these each year. So we put in money into the FTS, uh, FTL that run, it's run by the Committee on Trauma. This is Dr. Russo from Sacramento who for her two years did just an incredible job as the military um, future trauma leader. And, and uh, as of yesterday, I learned that uh, Dr. Kirby Gross, who, who won the philanthropic award from the foundation has given a lot of money to this program and so there are two slots reserved for military surgeons in the future trauma leaders program 
If you happen to know some of the trauma medical directors at the MTFs, consider being a mentor to them. You know, it's a good, it's a good idea to have a two-way exchange. And we, this is not formalized yet, but it could be. Conduct military-relevant trauma research. Center is as close as we can get to a National Institute of Trauma Research. To date, it has helped 70 different centers across the United States, 600 trauma professionals, and to the tune of $136 million in dedicated trauma research. Dr. Bolger's National Trauma Research Action Plan is housed at Center. So if you're looking for ideas of what should be studied, these are, these are ranked by professionals. Uh, it took a lot of time for them to put together. So under, for instance, if you wanted to study pediatric trauma, you can see the top three things that should be studied. The other thing that's just coming online is the National Trauma Research Repository, which is funded by the DOD, where the data from various studies will then be channeled into this repository, and you can then request to get data out. And finally, participate in the, in the SVS 2.0 a new program designed for in-conus exchange of faculty, two-way travel between the MTF and the civilian trauma centers, and will be supported uh, by Excelsior funds. Paying it forward means responding to a person's kindness to oneself by being kind to someone else. At one of the college meetings, I had the opportunity to meet Jita Filippani, and she, she is a, a producer and a director and uh, she played a clip, which I found really profound, and it is about veterans from World War II paying it forward um, by greeting troops that are coming back into the United States. So I'm gonna play that little video clip for you. She's given me permission to use it. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm gonna you have to go to Bangor, Maine. You can't believe the kind of welcome that the troops get. And it doesn't matter what time of the day or night these flights are coming in, there are people that show up every single time. Welcome home, heroes! I thought we were just gonna walk into an empty terminal. None of us were expecting anything like that. None of us. You get addicted to it. You can't give it up. Welcome home, guys. I appreciate you. There's cell phones in there, videos, talk all you want. Call somebody up, make them happy, ugly, or honey. <laughs> How long can they sustain this? You know, they've been doing this, and they, they're still there. Just don't stop for you to get on or get off. The world just keeps right on turning. Everybody has trials and tribulations. Two of my grandchildren are going in January. Every day, that's the deal. That's what we say. It's not my day. It's not been a bad trip at all. Sun don't come up tomorrow morning. It's not a big deal. Death is something uncontrolled by human beings. Age, how rich you are, what you're doing, doesn't enter the picture. You're gone. <laughs> can't do this. My life don't mean a hell of a lot to me, but if I can make it mean something to somebody else, that's my endeavor.
There's another person here in the audience who is paying it forward. His name is Bob Woodruff, an ABC reporter embedded with the troops in Iraq in 2006. He and his cameraman were both severely injured when they were attacked by a mortar. He was taken to a hospital in Baghdad, Air Force Hospital, where he was underwent a craniotomy and a craniectomy, was then flown into Germany, and then eventually into Walter Reed. After he recovered from his brain injury, he founded the Bob Woodruff Foundation along with his wife, Lee, and they continue to give back to military veterans and to their families. And I've asked Bob to come here today and say a few words to you. My story, uh, I'll keep it short and sweet because I know you want to get going, but uh, it's true, I think, that we, none of us can ever uh, predict what's going to happen in our lives, but I guess I never would have thought just how tight that I would become with the military, given the fact that I, my life was saved in an instant. Our story, <clears throat> I joke about sometimes with my, my from my Marine friends and my Army friends that I, I embedded twice covering the war in Iraq. One was on the invasion of Iraq coming through Kuwait into, into Iraq. That was with the Marines, and I came away from that completely safe. And then I got embedded with the Army back in 2006, and I came out blown up and almost dead. So I just make, I, I always blame them for what happened. <clears throat> but it's amazing in terms of your, your medicine and the relationship to the, the civil civilian uh, medical world is that I think that if we didn't have this war and so many injuries and, and wounds that I think we would not be as advanced in medicine as we are now. I always joke about this, that when they did surgery on me in Iraq, one, they had done four of these uh, craniectomies that day alone by the time I came through. They knew exactly how to do, and they knew because the way they were, if you get blown up by something and you got impact on your brain and things get torn apart, you know, they had more experience with it than, than anybody else. That's the place to get it. Not to mention that they can do anything they freaking wanted to try because they didn't have malpractice. So uh, sometimes they said, I love having this job doing this so they could experiment with things. But my story is uh, uh, sometimes I think the ones that are forgotten about when you hear these stories about how those that were uh, were wounded is that the, those are the caregivers, the ones that take care of you. You know, those are the ones that don't get the kind of attention. And so certainly I did in the beginning because on that day on January 29th of 2006, uh, me and my our team were there to report about the State of the Union that President Bush was going to deliver largely about passing over the power from the the, the U.S. military to the Iraqi military as the war was ultimately and hopefully going to wind down. So I was uh, with the MIT operation, which they were going, both the Iraqi and the U.S. were going together to go village by village to try to convince the people that what this, what the people were about, that what the Americans were, what we're doing for the country. And so we lined up in, in eight different vehicles, going village to village. And we were in the very front, which we didn't expect to do. And it was the Iraqi tank. And at one point, 
me and my cameraman, Doug Vogt, decided to stand up out of the top of the tank like this to do a stand-up. And the only other one up at the top was, a, was an Iraqi gunner who was holding his gun like this. Um, and he told us to get down because it looks like this is going to be a dangerous place in terms of improvised explosive devices, IEDs. But it was only three, minute, three seconds later that this thing detonated off to the left side over here. Uh, that, with that blast, the, the air knocked us out, me and Doug together, instantly. We, so we never felt or even saw the, the metal and the rocks that followed behind that. These rocks then smashed the left part of my head and my jaw. Uh, some of those uh, pieces of stone went all the way through past the, the veins and the arteries and stopped in the other side. Um, which should have paralyzed me or killed me, but it just stopped one centimeters away from piercing through the other side. Um, after that impact, I fell down into the tank. I was still, I went out for about two minutes. And this, of course, not, I don't remember really at all, but everyone had explained it to me. But I was up, I woke up about two minutes later and I looked at my producer and I said, uh, are we Am I still alive? And they said, yeah, you're alive. And that's the last thing I remembered until I woke up in Bethesda Naval 36 days later. Um, and I think most of in fact, I saw some of the doctors that knew me that, uh, that happened to be serving over there in, in Baghdad uh, or in Balad or Longstuhl. And I think there's a lot of assumption that I would not wake up. But if I did, it's probably not be able to be anything like I am now. But as Peggy said, who's also been a friend for so many years now for what she's done, is that they were able to get us out of the tank where we were hit. I have scapula tear on the back that was ripped to pieces. Um, blood was pumping out of the left side of my neck. My, my interpreter, the Iraqi interpreter, who I'm still to this day close friends with, put his hand over it, stopped it from bleeding. Uh, all the other guys, the Iraqi and the American guys, got out of the tanks. Uh, ultimately, got, they got fired at by all four di directions by the insurgents who had detonated this thing off. They were able to f push them back. We don't really know ultimately what happened to them. Uh, did they escape or were they shot? Don't even know. At that point, they were able to get me and Doug out of this vehicle, uh, put us into another one about a mile down the road where we were picked up by a helicopter. And I talked to the, uh, the pilot out in Washington State the next year and they told the story that they were actually ordered by the commander not to land because it was so dangerous in the spot, so don't land, and they did anyway, they turned. Sorry. So he turned down the notice and landed anyway. Sorry. So he got us out of the they got, we got in the helicopter, we rushed instantly to Baghdad Hospital where they assumed that I was gonna die. They brought me in anyway. They were able to slow it down. They were able to actually give me fentanyl even to knock me out and take away the pain. Then we was rushed from there out by, into a second helicopter to go down to Balad. And Balad was where they did this craniectomy, removed 16 centimeters of my left skull because they said that the brain was expanding and that I would not be able to survive if they didn't do so. 
all of this, they got us to Balad for that surgery within about 47 minutes after that blast. And that's one of the things why there's so many that are alive that I should not be, partly because of the, not only the medical care, but also the transportation advances that they didn't have before in previous wars. They said if this was six, five, five years earlier, there's no way I would have survived on this. So they got us into that second, went to months to Balad, then I was rushed out there to Longstuhl, and then literally within 48, hours I was able to get back to Bethesda Naval and then when I woke up uh, after 36 days my wife the day before was looking into um, uh, nursing homes for me to live in because they didn't think I would be anything like I am right now but of course I woke up and I looked at my wife when she walked and I said I said where the hell have you been <laughs> she was, where have I been now let me see <laughs> or since that time but you know, at, at that point, I had such horrific impact on that. Um, I just, I could barely even think straight. I couldn't speak. I had suffering from massive aphasia since I was impacted on this side of the brain. And I couldn't, I couldn't remember the names of two of my four kids. I couldn't name a single name of any of the states in America or any presidents of the United States. I couldn't remember any of it. But I was in that feeling surrounded by you at Bethesda Naval, by the, by the surgeons that had done so much for so many people. This was filled with civilian doctors and nurses and those that had done so much on the civil world, civilian world. Now they're suddenly serving within the military because this war was on fire. And they were there to help to save so many lives. There was literally on that third floor of Bethesda Naval that my family had coming. I was 45 years old at that time, unlike a lot of these others, large, large of them is at this because the Bethesda Naval were Marines. And these were, you know, 23-year-olds, 25-years-olds. They didn't have ABC News job you know, company behind them to help them. They didn't have a family that had some, you know, financial uh, safety and they were, could spend the time in the, in the, uh, in the hospital. My family got there and they saw some of those, these young ones that were hit in the same situations, the same kind of conditions, and they, they were not getting the same kind of care when they went back to their village. I mean, in the hospital itself, we were all given the most amazing service, medical care. And we felt when we wake up, it's like, wow, what a miracle this is. We just can't, can't believe how lucky we are to be alive. I had no idea that I was not even making sense when I spoke to my family. But I was just so happy to be alive. But then we knew and we learned that when they go home, after serving in this amazing unit they had of their closest friends living through the same thing day after day with a perfect plan laid out, they wake up in the morning and they go to bed at night and they suddenly come back into the United States having their lives saved. But they were going to go to this gigantic world that they didn't know where to go. So we knew that this was going to be a time where they're not going to get the same kind of care that they were there in Bethesda Naval. So my brothers and my wife said, you know, let's just do something. So when they go back, if they have to be forced to leave their base and they don't even have their mattress, so somebody came to us, so they bought a mattress and gave it to them when they needed it. They didn't have any kind of care. They didn't know where the, where the VA was or where it, you know, what they could give for them. So we decided to start a foundation. We thought it would last for maybe a year because of this emergency situations, um, just so we can do something for, for those who have gone through the same thing. So we are basically to create this, to fill this gap between what the VA and the DOD were able to do, but because they're so overwhelmed by this unexpected 
survival rates of those that had served. Um, they couldn't do everything. So at least we can do something and bring the civilian world into this for people, only us that are the 1%, 99% of the country are civilian, only 1% are military. And so we had this huge abilities to do something. But the idea is what can people do? People didn't know how to you know, find this way to try to help those that, that have survived. So since then, we have now, since we started this, it's now 17 and a half years since we started this. We never thought it was going to last. We've, we've raised about $140 million so far. We've now, got, we've now benefited about 600 different organizations that have been formed to help the, to help the, the veterans. Uh, we now have relationships with organizations in all 50 of the states of the United States. There's about 22 million veterans alive now in this country. We have contacts with almost all of them in some way. So we've had this impact that sometimes I say that uh, if there was anything that maybe was good about what happened to me is that I've got the most satisfying thing I've ever done in my life. So yeah, everything was changed. I could not do the same thing. The hardest, the challenges for all of us that were ba badly wounded is we had to at one point admit to ourselves we're not going to be the same people that we were before. You know, my memory is so hard. It's like a Groundhog Day sometimes all the time. I, some people came up to me today and says, you know, remember I met you eight years ago and we did X, Y, Z. I said, let's go, let's go play again. You know, you're my <laughs> new friend. <clears throat> I could not even remember so many things that I've done and names are really hard for me. And sometimes because of my aphasia, um, and I don't have to explain to any out here because you know it so well that because of this, that literally the, the letters kind of get twisted around in different order. And usually I know what the word that I'm looking for, I know how long it is, exactly how many syllables are in it. A lot of the same letters, but they get twisted around like, you know, Verizon, Viagra, kind of seems the same to me. Um, so I can't, sometimes I can't even make up for it. But I have all sorts of things that I, I remember when my mother was, was dying and it was really sad. So, but she lived an amazing life. And, and uh, 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 I'm trying to think of the name of it. Oh yeah, so my, my wife says, you know, what's where's your mom? And I said, well, she's she's here right now. We just we just called in a compost because I think she's dying. She goes, compost? She goes, oh, no, I'm sorry, hospice. That's what it was, hospice. And I said, well, it's kind of they do the same thing, you know. So, so these kind of words that I kind of twisted around, uh, which has really been kind of in, in, embarrassing for a lot of times. Um, you know, it's interesting that after these 17 years. I just had this in my heart. I just wanted so desperately, not only just to have these amazing relationships with all of you that have done so much for the veterans and have contributed so much time, but I was dying to go back and see those exact spots in Iraq where we were hit. So this year, I went back to Iraq with my sound man who was with me in that, in that tank and my son, who's now 32 years old, and he's entered this world. He's now on the other side of the lens as a cinematographer. He shoots. And so he came back with me to that exact spot where his father was almost killed 18 years ago. And I wanted to see this place. And I wanted to show that this country where my mission, my appointment was 
was was not finished back then. I felt like, why was it that I was jacked away before I finished this reporting about what's happening in this country? I want to go back and at least finish that assignment. And I wanted to go back and I wanted to see um, those that not only had helped me, but helped so many others. But you know, now in Iraq, the same doctors and nurses and uh, those who have been serving them are not there anymore. But I did know was there as those Iraqis that were in that that operation. We were out on the street, and I told you about there was the one gunner that was in that thing next to me. I never knew exactly what happened to him when me and my my Doug Vogt, my cameraman, we were rushed out, and I've known all of these others, civilian doctors who had been there, came back to the, to the civilian world or retired from the military. I've known all of them. I've known so many others, Americans that were, that were wounded. I kept in contact with those that were on my team from Iraq, like the interpreter that was with us. But I never had the chance to meet any of the other Iraqis that were in that vehicle with me when I was, when I was hit. So I went back and I talked to the, the, the Iraqi colonel who was in the vehicle right behind us. We went to that spot where that IED exploded from this side and he walked step by step through exactly what happened. How he knew there's probably something there because the thing was much closer to the vehicle. If it was out this way, it would have probably killed me and, and, and Doug. But it was down here, deflected a little bit off, off the vehicle, you know, went a slightly different uh, direction. And I sometimes tell people that if I had just been leaning forward like this or leaned back like this, I could have been dead or untouched. You know, sometimes this is, 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 is luck. Then I also had a chance to meet the gunner who was there, and, and he told me the story what happened to him. He holds up his hand. Two of these, these fingers were blown off by that thing, which I didn't know before. And that was his injury. And he said because he was holding this gun, like right here as we're driving along, uh, and it was made out of metal, when that detonated, when it hit us, it shot right towards this area in his crotch. And if he didn't have that piece of metal right in front of it, he said he would have lost something very different than his fingers. <laughs> but here's the funny thing. So I went to talk to him. And he said, since that moment, during that blast, he's had six kids. So he said he would not have any kids at all if this, that gun was not in his hand. So he doesn't get a chance to meet all of the people that have gone through the same thing and how much the... Now I know so many that were wounded, but I also even more of the families of those who were impacted by these kinds of wounds. And yeah, so what do you call it? A wound, wound shock? Yeah. I mean, so many people lived through the wound shock, you know, which I love that word. I haven't heard that one before. Um, because they have now had lives that have changed, but so many people are doing so much. But like I said, we wouldn't know so much about this kind of technology and surgery if we didn't have this war. Um, so that's the one good thing about it. So I want to congratulate you, Peggy, for everything that you've done for everybody out here. I just want to, sh sh to share that story because there's so many that so many so much that people want to do for the veterans. That's really our job now in the foundation is just to find a way for them to do it. So thank you also what you're doing. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. 
You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.